We've been in this series here this last few weeks and uh, thinking about what we do as a Christ follower. If I'm a Christ follower, if I have looked to Jesus and asked for the forgiveness of my sin <clears throat> and I've placed my life under His authority and direction, what is, what is the natural outcome of my life? What becomes normal for me? And Jesus has been kind of showing us that through the Word, and He would say, these are things, these aren't radical things, they're not edgy things, uh, they're not things that you need a, a theological education for. These are just normal outcomes and normal results of being His follower. So things like, I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, as if He Himself were making His appeal through me, that whoever I interact with, whatever my contact is with them, uh, it's as if they were interacting with Jesus. Uh, we talked last uh, weekend about how we are compassionate Christ followers, that when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we talked about that compassion, how as a Christ follower, I'm going to see things a, a little differently. I'm going to value things in a different way, and I'm, therefore I'm going to interact with people in a different way. So we've just been kind of laying that out the last couple of weeks. If, if uh, you want the details of that, those conversations are on the website, or you can get them through the app, kind of catch up with it. We've also said that if you're not yet a Christ follower, uh, what we're trying to do is define for you what a Christ follower is, what it would be like. So if you decided to follow Jesus, kind of knowing what you would get into a little bit, and then it also explains why Christians are weird, right? We do weird stuff, and so they just kind of let you get your mind around, around that a little bit. <clears throat> this weekend, I want to kind of move the conversation forward some, and I want to kind of ask this question, how should a person who is not a follower of Christ, what the Bible calls the world, the world is anybody that's not me, so how, do, how should the world, people who are not yet Christ followers, what should they expect from a Christ follower in how we respond to them? Is there a fair expectation? Is there a way that God would want us to position ourselves? As a Christ follower, how do I interact with people who I don't understand and can't agree with, right? So, as a follower of Jesus, I have a new mind, a new heart. There's certain things that the world does or non-Christ followers would do that I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would you think that way or why would you value those things? And then there's certain things that the world does that I can't agree with. As a Christ follower, I am kind of bound to the confines of Scripture. So, so the Bible defines for me how I am to, to think and live and what my actions are to be, even what my beliefs should be. And I'm naturally going to run up against folks who do not subscribe to the Bible. This is not their authority. And I'm going to find things in their life and in our culture that I, I just can't agree with. I have to step aside or be separate from it because I have to stay aligned with the Word of God, right? So this is an interesting conversation because I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture is a little tense right now, right? So we, we are not good at disagreeing with each other. Uh, we're not good at having conversations. We're not good at understanding uh, someone that we're not aligned with. In fact, it's very, very combative, right? So this is generally what happens when, when I have a position and I run into someone who does not hold that position, what we will do generally in our culture is we will wait, we'll talk to them until we hear a couple of buzzwords. And once I hear a couple of buzzwords that clue me in that they don't agree with me, I will stereotype that person, label them, and discount them and totally shut the conversation down. So I'll hear a buzzword. I'll assume that they mean what I think they mean. I'll stereotype them. Oh, they're just like these people. I'll label them. They must be in that camp. And once I have them in that camp, I dismiss myself from trying to understand them or know them at all. 
This is what social media does. We'll tweet this at each other. This certainly is politics. We'll kind of talk about things this way with each other. And it even becomes a moral and an ethical conversation. You view things this way. You have this label. You have that label. Therefore, I don't listen to you and I don't agree with you and I discount you. And kind of our culture works this way a lot right now. And we do it on all those issues. And the question is, as a Christ follower, is that what the world around me should expect from me? Should they expect that same combative attitude from me? If you fire at me at Twitter, should I fire back at you? If you post this, should I post this? Should I retweet or repost these things? Is that how I should approach you if I don't know you or understand you or if I cannot agree with you? Or does an unbelieving world actually have the right to expect something different from me because I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Would I engage that relationship from a different position with a different method with a different motivation. This is what happens. Our culture right now, kind of individually, we are so adamant about being heard. You must hear me. You must hear me. You have to hear me. And when two people take a position of that idea that you must hear me, neither one of them are seeking to understand. They just want to be understood. You move that into a politic, you move that into a spiritual conversation, you move that into a fight with your friend, and you never get to someone's heart, let alone their mind, because I'm so adamant about being heard, I actually don't want to hear you anymore. Now, it's fascinating what the Bible would say about this to Christ followers, In the book of James, chapter 1, James is Jesus' brother. Uh, He believed that Jesus was God. He actually died. He actually was martyred because he would not recant the resurrection. He saw Jesus be crucified, then he interacted with him after he rose again from the dead. And James writes in the book of James, he's actually writing to a group of Christians who are living in a culture that they cannot understand and cannot agree with. And this culture that they're in is very combative with them. In fact, it's violently combative with them. It will put them to death because they will not renounce Christ and especially the resurrected Christ. So James is writing a letter to Christians that live in a culture like this, and he's teaching them how to respond in this culture. And he says this in verse 19 of chapter 1 of his book, James. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, those are Christ followers, my dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. James lays out kind of this broad rule of thumb, and he says, we as Christ followers should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry because if anger becomes what defines the conversation, What we sacrifice with anger is righteousness. Suddenly, even if what I'm saying is correct, the way that I am saying it is invalidating the truth of the statement. He says, for the Christ follower, we are quick to listen. We we dial in. I want to understand your heart. I want to understand your mind. I'm not so adamant to be heard that I can't hear you. I am slow to speak, and I'm looking to avoid the anger altogether because if I return fire, my effort to do that will invalidate and discredit and wipe away everything that I'm trying to say. And James looks at a Christ follower in a culture that vehemently disagreed with them and says, we approach this differently. It's not the Twitter war. It's not the Facebook war. It's not the argument in class or the dorm room. It is an understanding of that person's heart. You come to this conversation not as a combatant, but as an ambassador. You come at this person not as an enemy, 
but as someone who is harassed and helpless and perhaps doesn't understand yet, you come from a very different position and you go to them seeking to help Jesus make sense to them, not to win your point or the argument. Now, what the Apostle Paul does is he takes this rule of thumb, this, this quick to listen, slow to speak rule of thumb, which applies personally and then corporately and then culturally, right? It's just all over the board. And he takes that truth as a, as a principle and he applies it in Acts chapter 17. And I want to look at Acts chapter 17. It's actually where we're going to camp this weekend. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs, or somebody will give you one. It's page 772 in those Bibles. And we're going to kind of hang out in Acts chapter 17, and I want to show you how the Apostle Paul practices this principle in a culture that he doesn't understand or can't agree with, okay? Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to hit some highlights to show you these points. I really encourage you to read all of Acts chapter 17 because it's a fascinating uh, uh, description of what Paul is doing there. You don't want to miss that part of the Bible. It's really, really fun. But we're just going to hit some highlights. And I'm going to show you how Paul interacted with two different groups of people and how he helped Jesus make sense to each of these groups of people, okay? So the first group of people that we're going to see him interact with is people that I, I came up with the title. I called them religiously lost people, right? That's not in the Bible. That's just how I titled it. So he's interacting with religiously lost people. Now, what is a religiously lost person? A, rig, a religiously lost person is anybody who believes that someone other than Jesus can be God and someone other than Jesus can forgive them of their sin, okay? That's a religiously lost person. So they think someone other than Jesus can be God, and there may be another way to make God happy than the, just receiving the forgiveness of your sin. So these are people that sometimes we call them Jesus plus or Jesus minus. I believe in Jesus, and I believe I have to be baptized, I have to do communion, I have to go to confession, I got to go to church, I got to give money, I got to slick my hair back, I got to get a tattoo that says Jesus on it, right? Jesus plus these things, and maybe I'll get into heaven. Or Jesus minus. I'm okay with Jesus, but he's not the only way to heaven like Jesus says that he is. It's spirituality. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Hindu. I'm a Mormon. I'm a Muslim. I'm whatever. It's Jesus minus because it's just belief in God that kind of gets me to, to heaven, okay? So those are, these are people who participate in religion. They're not anti-religious, but it's Jesus plus Jesus minus is someone other than Jesus as a crucified and risen sole source of salvation, Jesus. And Paul is having a conversation with them. These are people he doesn't fully understand and he can't agree with because he's a follower of Christ. And he's having this conversation in chapter 17. We'll start in verse 2 through 4. And he's talking to them. And the Bible says this, as, he was, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on, on, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. Now, press pause here. Let me show you something. I highlighted this word custom on purpose. It was his custom. It was his habit. It was his instinct to go to the synagogue. In the ancient world, the synagogue was the place where you would go and exchange religious ideas and philosophies. That's what people would do. They'd spend their whole Saturday at church, and they would practice religion, and then they would debate the Scriptures. They would try to figure out God and understand His heart and His mind, and they would, they would philosophize about who God was and what He was like. Paul, I want you to catch this, made it his custom to go to those people. He did not avoid them. He did not discount them. He did not build up a wall around himself for fear that they might contaminate him. He went to them and he engaged the conversation on their turf, by the way. And how did he do it? He did it by reasoning with them from the Scripture. That word reason is the idea that he wanted to bring understanding or illuminate the Scripture. He wanted to show them 
how the Scripture itself pointed toward Jesus. And that's what he did. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is that Messiah. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And so he goes and he helps Jesus make sense to them. He engages the conversation. He doesn't run away from the conversation. And he reasons, and God worked through it. Quite a few Jews accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. A whole bunch of God-fearing Greeks accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. When he went into that arena with gentleness and respect as an ambassador with compassion to help harassed and helpless people understand the heart and the mind of God, a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus Christ. It's pretty cool. Now, you also have to read the rest of the chapter. A whole bunch of people also did not become followers of Jesus Christ, and they tried to kill Paul, and they had his friend Jason arrested and put in prison, right? So this is not winning friends and influencing people and everybody loves you, but it's approaching the debate differently. Paul did not go in and say, you guys are dumb for believing that. He did not go in and say, haven't you ever read the Bible? He did not go in patronizing or condescending or combative, but as an ambassador with a compassion helping Jesus make sense. When Paul looked at the people in that synagogue, he did not see his enemies. He saw that many of the people there were sincerely looking for the one true God. And they didn't know how to find him. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were raised in a culture that didn't point to the one true God. They were raised in a religious system that didn't point to the one true God. And what they needed was someone to come and speak the heart and mind of the sovereign who sent them as if Christ himself were making his appeal to them. And God reaped a harvest, Jesus' metaphor, reaped a harvest. Many people followed him. Many people hated his guts. But he engaged them, and he helped Jesus to make sense to them. Now, there's a second example of this in Acts chapter 17 with a different type of person so Jesus, or, or Paul went and he talked to the religiously lost person. The second type of person that, that shows up in Acts 17 is the humanist lost person. Again, just my title, but someone who's a humanist, but they don't know Christ. Let me show you this and then we'll explain it a little bit, okay? So this is uh, verses 16 through 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue. What happened was Paul left town. He had to run for his life. He went to another town, Athens. And when he got to the other town, he practiced his custom of going to the synagogue and, and reasoning. So he reasoned in the synagogue of a different town with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. In the ancient world, if you were a religiously oriented person and you wanted to exchange ideas, you would often go to the synagogue. If you were a secular person, a non-religious person, where you would exchange those ideas was the marketplace. So it, literally the market, and oftentimes you'd have like your produce and your meat and bread and all that kind of stuff, and in the middle of all that, you would usually have like a theater, maybe an amphitheater, and there would be drama, think of Greek plays there, but then the philosophers would be there, and they would teach, and you would debate philosophy all day. So again, Paul goes to the place of ideas, not away from it, and he engaged it, and he reasoned there day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate or converse, is the way you would read that word, with him. He starts to have this conversation with philosophers, Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers, people who are looking for the meaning and the purpose of life and aren't sure where to find it. He goes as an ambassador with compassion for those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he's helping Jesus make sense to those people, okay? Now, 
what is an Epicurean and a Stoic philosopher? I wanted to give you kind of a modern example of this, okay? So a Stoic philosopher, a modern example of a Stoic philosopher would be Ambassador Spock, okay? From the Star Trek movies, if you don't know who he is, you should watch better movies. But <clears throat> uh, Spock would be a Stoic philosopher, and he would be a, a, a fictional, by the way, he's not real, but he would be a fictional example of someone who was Stoic, where he would say, everything is logical, everything is reasonable, and if it's not logical or not reasonable, it's not valuable and probably doesn't exist. If you can't touch it, feel it, measure it, prove it, it doesn't exist, and everything is based in science or biology. So we are only the way that we are because we are human animals that function on instincts. You can touch it, feel it, prove it, and that's how you know it, it exists. And that's basically Stoic philosophy. It has some real faults in it. All you have to do is start talking about what love is because you can't touch it, feel it, or prove it. And it kind of blows up Stoic philosophy. But, but they would argue around that. And they would do that. And they would say everything is the real world. It's a tangible world. That's a, in general, that's a Stoic philosopher. And then the Bible says he also bumped into Epicurean philosophers. And these would be modern examples of an Epicurean philosopher. Tony and Oprah and Joel would be examples of that. And an Epicurean philosopher is one who would say, in essence, you do you. That if you want happiness or you want meaning or you want fulfillment, where that is found is within yourself. And if you can discover yourself and express yourself and improve yourself, if you can find your own truth and live your own truth, that is where happiness and meaning and fulfillment comes from. That's basically what an Epicurean philosopher is. Now, what we did, or what I did, was I would take those two ideas, a Stoic philosopher and an Epicurean philosopher, and I would combine those two ideas, and it's just simply what we would call humanism. So humanism is this belief that what is real is what is tangible and in front of us, and that humanity is the hope of humanity. So if humanity could be the, the betterment, if we could better ourselves, and if we could become the highest form of ourselves, and if we could start the Starfleet Federation, there would be peace on earth. You got to watch Star Trek. Good movies. Go back to that. Good movies, right? So if we could do all of that, I could find happiness within myself, meaning within myself, improvement within myself, that is the key to making the world a better place. And there's two types of humanists. There's kind of a regular humanist that's spiritual. And that would be an example of like what Joel Osteen would say. He would say, you find within yourself and that's what God wants for you. He's going to help you find that so you can achieve your destiny and have your best life now. It's a spiritual humanist. And then there's what we would call a secular humanist and that would be like an atheist or an agnostic who actually would teach the exact same thing. They would just pull God out of it, right? And Paul is engaging those ideas. Now, this is a big deal for a Christian because as a culture, we live in a humanist culture that is defined by humanism, and that often shows up in a religious way, which causes a person to be religiously lost, right? So let me give you an example of, of this. If you've ever heard this phrase, if you've ever heard somebody say, I am a self-made person, I'm a self-made person, that phrase is a humanistic phrase. And as a Christian, I cannot agree with it. I don't believe that I'm a self-made person, I can't. I believe that I'm a God-made person. I believe that God knit me together in my mother's womb. I believe that I am Christ's handiwork, and I was created in Christ to do good works, which He prepared in advance for me to do. I believe that it is God who was sovereign, who decided that I would be born to my parents at the little slice of time I was born in history on the little piece of dirt that I was born into. I believe that it is God who gifted me, God who created me, God who calls me, God that ordains my path. 
I cannot believe I am a self-made person. That's a humanistic thought that I, I don't fully understand and I can't agree with. Uh, another example of humanism would be the, 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 the extreme ideas of self-esteem. That if I want to be happy, what I have to do in order to be happy is to esteem myself more highly. And the more highly that I esteem myself, and the more that I raise myself and my goals and my awareness and my truth onto the pedestal of my life, that is the key to me achieving the destiny that I create for myself. As a Christian, I cannot agree with that. I would have to look and say, as I read the scripture, the Bible would tell me that that is a form of self-idolatry. Because what the Bible would teach me is that what I'm called to do is empty myself of myself. So that you don't see me, you see Christ within me. My goal and my dream is to die to myself so that Christ is amplified in myself. In fact, he must become greater and I must become less and less. See? So as a Christian, I can't agree with that way of thinking. I can't agree with the path that that would put me on in life. I can't go there and follow Christ simultaneously. So suddenly, I'm at odds with the philosophies of the marketplace. And what did Paul do? He reasoned. He went to the marketplace as an ambassador. He saw the philosophy. He didn't look at him and say, there's dumb. Who, what kind of dummy thinks that? He looked and said, no, no, no. I, I understand why that makes sense if you don't know about Christ. If you actually think that life ends at your death, how you think makes all the sense in the world. But I got some good news for you. I want to help Jesus make sense. I want to help the way that Jesus thinks and what Jesus' passion is for you to make sense to you. I'm going to reason. I'm going to bring that understanding to this way of thinking. And the Bible says, if you keep reading Acts 17, those philosophers, they actually took him to like their headquarters. Paul reasoned with their chief philosophers. A bunch of them followed Christ and a bunch of them hated Paul's guts and tried to kill him. He had to run for his life, right? So you see the same thing happen. When he looked at people who thought that way, he didn't think, oh, you a bunch of dummies. He saw people through compassion as sheep without a shepherd. The way you think makes all kinds of sense. Did you know there's another way that you could think? And he went as an ambassador with compassion, helping Jesus make sense to them. Now, we would look at the Scriptures as a Christian and say, that's what we do. That's normal, it's natural, it's not radical, but with gentleness and respect, which Paul also tells us to do, with gentleness and respect, we engage those ideas. With gentleness and respect, we engage those individuals. With gentleness and respect, as an ambassador, we want to help Jesus make sense to people who don't know Jesus and don't see the, the world through the lenses that Jesus would have us see the world through, okay? Now, those are two examples of Paul being quick to listen and slow to speak and helping Jesus to make sense. How do we do this then? If I was going to put kind of skin on these ideas, how could we play this out in our lives? And what I've done here, I want to walk us through uh, five examples of how we can do this. This is not a comprehensive list. It's just meant to alter our paradigm a little bit. That I do not engage these ideas as a combatant. I engage them as an ambassador. And how do I use my life? I don't want human anger to strip away the righteousness of my argument. So how do I engage these ideas as an ambassador and how do I use my life to help Jesus make sense? Okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, one of the ways that I use my life to help Jesus make sense is with my words. Sometimes when I'm in the right setting, 
with the right individual, the right course of action to help Jesus make sense is a conversation. And even a philosophical conversation that's back and forth with somebody who thinks that way and also wants to have the conversation. Uh, my favorite example of this and, uh, that I've been a part of is uh, one time when I had a conversation with an atheist on an airplane. Uh, I was flying somewhere doing something, and uh, I sat down next to this lady who did not have her headphones on, because on an airplane, the international sign of leave me alone is your headphones on, right? So she didn't have her headphones on, and I didn't put mine on, and so we said hi and visited a little bit, got into the flight, and I got my Bible out. I was reading my Bible, and she goes, what are you reading? I said, a Bible, dummy. Don't you recognize it? See? I said, oh, I'm reading my Bible. She goes, she goes, what part of the Bible? And I don't even remember, but we talked about that a little bit. And she goes, what do you do? And I thought, oh, here we go. Here we go, right? What do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, that's neat that you're a pastor. She goes, that's neat that you do good work. She goes, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, that's great. I'm glad that you're an atheist. And she goes, Pastor Jeff, can I tell you all the reasons I'm an atheist? And I was like, well, actually, it's Dr. Bogue, but go ahead. You can do all that. <laughs> And she, she went for about 45 minutes telling me why she doesn't believe in the Bible, why she doesn't believe there's a God, and why she doesn't believe that the church is valid, and how all that doesn't make sense to her. Actually, it was a very fascinating conversation. She's a very smart person, and I really enjoyed learning that from her. I wanted to be slow to speak, quick to listen. It's fascinating when you listen. And she said, what do you think about that? I said, well, I'm so glad you asked. I, I said, you know how you don't believe any of those things? She said, yeah. I said, I don't believe an atheist. She goes, what? I said, I don't believe an atheist. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't believe an atheist because I don't believe in unicorns. And she looked at me, she goes, oh, you're really good at this. I said, thank you very much. I am really good at this. I said, I don't believe in unicorns. And because I don't believe in unicorns, I have not spent my life studying why they don't exist. I have not comprised sophisticated arguments as to their, how they, the unicorn belief is invalid. If I interact with someone who believes in a unicorn, I just assume they're crazy. I don't talk about unicorns. I don't think about unicorns. I don't read books about unicorns. I won't have conversations about unicorns because I actually believe they don't exist. She said, have you been drinking? I said, just a little bit, but listen, that's not the point. She, go, she goes, I, I understand what you're saying. I said, right. I said, I don't believe in an atheist because I believe if someone has dedicated their life to disproving something, they would only do that for fear that it actually exists. I believe that if you would study against something, it's so that you convince yourself that it's not real so that you can justify not being a part of it. So down deep in the core of every atheist is a fear that there is a God that you have to answer to them. Do you agree with me? And we got the joking, and we got the talking, and we had the most pleasant conversation, two nerds talking back and forth for hours on an airplane. And the plane landed, and we said goodbye, and we got off, and I've never seen her talk to her since. There are times that the verbal argument, or apologetic is the fancy word for it, is a great thing. There are times when your professor asks the question that you should answer it with a paper. There are study tables. There are places where people also have an open heart and also have an open mind, and a conversation brings you together. It doesn't divide you apart. Sometimes, sometimes we use words to make Jesus make sense, but not all the time. Other times what we do to make Jesus make sense is we make Jesus make sense with our counsel, with our counsel. Let me give you an example of this. So the Bible is very clear about morality, right? But here's the problem in our culture. There is no commonality about morality. There is no commonality about morality. So if I launch into a conversation about why you sleeping with your girlfriends is sin or why pornography is evil or why you shouldn't look at naked people, all that kind of stuff, there's not a commonality about morality, right? There's not even a commonality about morality in this room right now. 
If I said you shouldn't look at naked people, half of you would say it's naked, and I would say you grew up in the wrong part of the country, it's naked, right? <laughs> so if I said you shouldn't look at naked people, many of us would say, well, what is naked? Is art naked? Is literature naked? Is pornography naked? And I would say, well, I'm talking about pornography that's naked. What is pornography? How naked do you have to be for it to be pornography? See, there's no commonality about morality. So if we start the conversation at a place like that, it's an argument instantly, especially with the way that our culture is wired right now. What I could do is I could start the conversation differently by asking a question that you may have an interest in. So instead of arguing about what's moral or immoral or what marriage is or what it shouldn't be, what if I said this? What if I asked this question? Anybody in here not want to get divorced? I could help you with that. I can show you in the Bible, the New Testament, how to not get divorced. And if you apply these principles in general, and two people sought to come to submit themselves to those principles jointly, it would protect your marriage, and your marriage could be happy and healthy and sexy for a lifetime. Here's another one. Anybody in here want to be a good dad who didn't have a dad? Anybody in here want to break the parenting cycles that hurt you so much? I can help you with that. The Bible actually lays out how to be a good dad and how to be a good mom. And if we look at the, 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 the negative examples in the Bible and the positive teachings of the Bible, and we apply those, you can actually break the cycles of dysfunction in your family. Anybody want any help with that? Anybody in here not want to be overwhelmed by, by the stress that comes from debt and bad financial decisions? I can help you with that. The, the Bible actually has financial, financial principles and guidelines in it that if we practice will cause us not to be buried under the burden of debt and bad financial principles. I could help you with that. And as I help you know about marriage and as I help you in parenting and as I help you with your finances, all of it is the Word of God. So all of it will help Jesus make sense to you. And none of it is an argument or a camp or a stereotype that we're running to. Here's another example. I can help Jesus make sense with sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know one of the weirdest things that Christians do? You ready for this? This is really weird. One of the craziest things that Christians do. Are you prepared for this? This is going to blow your mind. One of, the, one of the dumbest things that Christians do that just sets us apart. Are you ready for this? Are you prepared? Are you amped up enough? Ready? Here it is. One of the weirdest things that Christians do, ready, is we live generously. You know why? Because the church wants your money? Nope. You know why we do it? Because we don't believe that money is tied to our happiness. As a Christ follower, I don't believe that. I believe that I can have nothing and still be fulfilled and happy. In fact, I believe that I can live in contentment without having everything I ever wanted. When I think of someone who's happy and successful and meaningful in life, I think of Jesus who never owned a home, never owned a car, and never had money in the bank. And his followers had their needs met but they never had any of those things. But we believe, I actually believe that my wealth will be in eternal heaven and it doesn't really matter how much of it I have on earth. That causes me to live generously because I believe that the best use of my money is not to build wealth and satisfaction for myself. The best use of my money is to do good works which will lay up for me a treasure in heaven. I can't agree with a humanistic way of thinking that says uh, you can't take it with you, that if you don't have enough money, you can't be happy, and that the key to happiness is to 
use everybody in relationships to get what you want. As a Christian, I actually can't agree with that. That's a very Epicurean way of thinking. That's why I also don't believe that God's highest goal is to make me rich and healthy. I can't agree with that kind of a gospel. So, I'll be generous and like it. It's fun, right? In fact, this is how much, this is how radical it is. Jesus says that we're to love our enemies instead of hate them, which is crazy. So, I'm going to love my enemies instead of hate them. And then the Bible also says this, one of the best ways to love your enemies is to heap burning coals of kindness on their head. It's awesome. So, the more of a jerk you are to me, the more generous I'm going to be to you, which says two things. It makes Jesus make sense, and it totally screws with your head. Because you're going to get the opposite response from me than anybody else in the culture would give you. And as I do that, I'm going to show you how a God that is followed by rebellious people still chooses to bless them abundantly and gives them all things for their enjoyment. I'm just going to act like God does, see. I can help Jesus make sense through my sacrifice by doing weird things. I can help Jesus make sense with life change. When my life changes, see, when I move from Captain F-bomb to Captain Encouragement, uh, when, 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 when all of my friends know that our marriage is on the rocks and on the verge, and, and yet we, 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 we somehow come to a healthy place we change, and we move from the couple that fights and is just awkward to be around to, to the marriage that's healthy and happy and sexy. What happened to you? When, when I'm free from my addictions, when, when, when somehow I'm free and there's something else driving my life, when I'm not consumed with my body image like I used to be, when I'm not consumed with my public persona like I used to be, when, when suddenly I'm more into giving my life away than taking from the people around me, there's a very high probability that when my life changes like that, somebody might look at me and say, what is the reason for the hope that's within you? What, what happened to you? See? And I can help Jesus make sense. The last example I put up here is that I can help Jesus make sense with my transparency. You guys, listen. If you're a Christ follower, I want you to hear me, okay? Christ followers should be the last people ever who put on a persona like we have it all together. We call those happy plastic people, right? That we look at, somebody looks at your life, we are just happy all the time. Are you guys good? We're good. We're good. We're so good. We're great. We're good. You didn't fight on the Honda Odyssey minivan on your way to church this morning? No, we didn't do that at all. We, we never fight. We pray for each other. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Like, we, we, right? This idea that somehow I've arrived and I understand righteousness and I live above you and you don't understand because you're not nonsense. This is what happens as a Christ follower. The more committed I am to Christ, the more He reveals sin in my life. The more sin is revealed in my life, the more dependent I learn to become on the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. The more I become dependent on those things, the more grateful I become and the more humbly I live. When I look at the world around me and I can say with authenticity, listen, I, I am really no good at following Jesus. I, I am an imperfect person who tries to serve a perfect God. I want to. I want to not lose my temper. I want to be selfless. I, I, I want to not drop the F-bomb. Like, I want to do those things. I'm striving for those things. But I want you to understand that God loves me deeply and He knows how flawed I am. That's the wonder of it. See? You know how many people believe that you have to get your act together before you follow Christ? 
when Jesus teaches that the whole reason to follow Christ is because you don't have a prayer on the planet of getting your act together. It's by grace you're saved through faith, not by works. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God. So when we live, we call it living naked at grace. When we just live, it's, it's me, and it's a broken me, and I do love Jesus. I am changing, and God is changing me, but it's a long, slow process, and forgive me for messing it up along the way. See. Now, should someone who is not a follower of Jesus do they have the right to expect that from Christians? And the answer is yes. And if you're not a Christ follower yet, and you, you reached out to an individual, or you reached out to a church, and instead of compassion and grace and acceptance, what you received was judgment and rejection, I'm sorry. I truly am. If you ever experience that at grace, I'm deeply sorry, or from me, or from anybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Because that is not the response that Christ would want. It doesn't mean that we agree, because I can't agree with you on things that go outside the, the bounds of Scripture. I can't. I would forsake Christ, and I can't do that. We can't see eye to eye about some of the debates in our culture. I can't, right? Because I, I want to be faithful to the Scripture. And so I don't even want to, and I can't if I wanted to, without walking away from Christ. But that does not mean I am harsh. That does not mean that you're my enemy, that we're at war, that I go to combat you and prove you wrong. What you should be able to expect from me is an ambassador that helps Jesus make sense, is compassion. Paul says later, gentleness and respect. Not agreement, I can't agree. But you should be able to expect love and grace from me even if we're unable to see eye to eye on things. I wrote it this way in, in my notes. I said this, the people that God puts in the path of the Christ follower should expect the message of Jesus to be delivered by the messenger of Jesus in a manner that the heart of Jesus is clearly illustrated. The world around us should expect that the, the message of Jesus that's delivered by the messenger of Jesus should be delivered in such a manner that the heart of Jesus is clearly illustrated. In a combative culture, we do not come to the disagreements as a combatant, but as an ambassador. And you see Paul do that with people he deeply disagreed with. Some of them hated him, tried to kill him. But some of them were just harassed and helpless. Some of them just needed a compassionate Christ follower with the courage to go. Some of them did not understand who the Messiah was. And when Paul reasoned, when he explained Christ, many of them Many of them followed. See. I was thinking about this this week, and, and the question that came to my mind was, was, this was kind of personal, but it's probably for all of us, but it, the question for me was this. It was, it was, what is the message of my life? Does my life help Jesus make sense? And so I was thinking about that. I was looking at my life, and, and, and I thought, I was convicted this way. When I look at my life, one of the dangers I run in my life is this, that my life helps Grace Church make sense. Even, Grace Church is not the calling. When we go out in the go and do weekend, it's not to put Grace Church on display. 
It's Christ always foremost. So I was even I was convicted. I'm like, but it, when people look at me, do they think of Grace Church or do they think of Christ? See, does your life make Jesus make sense? Do your words make Jesus make sense? Does your sacrifice, does your life change, does your transparency? When people look at you, what would they identify you as? And the goal for the believer is that it's Christ in me. He's greater, I'm less. I am lost in the shadow of Jesus. See? When you look at your social media, this is the reason why social media is a big deal. Ready? Here it is. Because for most people, social media is the largest platform they'll ever stand on. More people listen to you on social media than anywhere else in your life for most people. So when you are on the largest platform that you will ever stand on, what is the message that comes from that platform? And if it's politic, if it's hobby, if, it, if it's the things you care about, even if it's family, I'm not saying that we put all that stuff away. That's not the point at all. But when it's the only message, it doesn't help Jesus make sense to the marketplace that it goes into. See, Paul went as an ambassador, as a compassionate Christ follower, as salt, as light. And he, God, through his words, would look at us and say, my people, that's what you do. It's not radical. It's not edgy. It's not a kick. It's a natural outcome of knowing and following me. Right? All right. Band's going to come out. Would you pray with me for a little bit? Jesus, help us with this. Lord, I, I think, at least for me, it's what I want to do and I'm no good at half the time. I get so worked up and caught up in earthly things. So forgive me and help me. All of us, Lord, if you would press deep into our hearts, ignite a passion for the lost and dying world around us. Help us to remember that everything else is going to be lost anyways. There's nothing more important than the soul and the salvation of humanity. So God, show us arenas in our life where the message is different than you. And help us, give us wisdom to see that and adjust that and to seize the opportunities to clarify your heart and your mind. In these still moments, God, teach us this. Convict us of it. Change us. And help us to, to yield to you in all things. Jesus, in your name.